It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Neo-Nazi terrorists are stealing headlines from ISIS, carrying out calculated, horrific, mass casualty attacks. At least 11 people are dead and six more wounded after a man walked into a synagogue near downtown Pittsburgh with an assault rifle and three handguns and opened fire. On the shooting attacks on two mosques in the New Zealand city of Christchurch, 49 people are known to have died. And they're taking a page out of the playbook of the infamous terrorist group. They're savvy internet natives, that use encrypted apps like Telegram to spread propaganda, recruit, and orchestrate terrorism, all in the safe confines of the encrypted app. This week, we've got Vice News reporter Tess Owen to talk about her scoop on neo-Nazi terror and Telegram. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. So Tess, Telegram and white nationalists, it's, it's become a thing recently. That it has, yeah. And, and why is that? Well, it's been the case for a couple of years at least, uh, but in the last nine months there's definitely been a massive increase in the number of far-right or white nationalist channels, public-facing channels on Telegram. Well, okay, so let's talk about this because it, it, it came into the news recently because there was a criminal complaint against somebody named Jared Smith. The FBI has arrested Jarrett William Smith, a U.S. Army soldier who authorities say discussed plans to bomb the headquarters of a major U.S. news network. Smith allegedly messaged an FBI informant in an online group chat on August 19th. Authorities say he discussed plans to launch an attack inside the U.S., the possibility of killing members of Antifa, and searching for, quote, radicals like himself. And Telegram featured semi-prominently inside of it, or at least we, we know now that he was very active on Telegram and possibly had contact with an FBI agent. So tell me about it. Yeah, exactly. So in uh, one day before he was arrested uh, last month, Jarrett Smith had unwittingly shared his bomb-making expertise with an undercover FBI agent on Telegram. And he was writing under the, uh, the, the name Anticosmic 2182. And since his arrest, sort of as news traveled that he'd been arrested through telegram channels, some of these sort of hardcore neo-Nazi groups started to freak out, saying like everyone cut contacts with him, he's been arrested, who's, you know, we've got to find out who's been talking to and all that. And this guy, to be clear, was arrested for associations with some pretty hardcore groups. But he also was, was you know, planning on, I mean, he, he had joined the military. This is like a hardcore neo-Nazi, I mean, almost terrorists at this point, if we're, if, we're, if we're being colloquial about it. Right. And, and he was, according to the complaint anyway, he was planning on building a car bomb and using it against the headquarters of a major news network and had also discussed possibly going to Ukraine to fight with the Azov Battalion, this like, far-right regiment. Now, all this conversation is happening on Telegram. And what, why is that significant? It's significant because it's sort of a real-world reminder that the far-right has created a home for themselves on Telegram, which is this encrypted messaging app that you know groups like ISIS have relied on for years and have been very open about the fact they've relied on this app to recruit and spread propaganda and, and radicalize people and even orchestrate attacks. 
Stung by revelations that ISIS was using the ultra-secure messaging app Telegram, the Berlin-based service has been racing to shut down dozens of channels used by the group to spread propaganda and recruit members. But despite the move hailed by founder Pavel Durov, reports say no sooner has one channel been removed than many others are popping up in its place. And this shows, uh, you know, the arrest of this soldier shows that the far right is taking a page out of the ISIS playbook and also sort of creating their own or using the app to do similar things. So it's essentially like they're they're going towards encrypted networks. It's it's I mean because I feel like the heyday of online terrorism or cyber terrorism when you go back to like ISIS in 2014 and and onwards. It, it's it's very open, it's very out there. Anyone can get to it. It's on Facebook, it's on Twitter. But now we're seeing not only these super far right neo-Nazi terror groups using things like Telegram to, you know, create and spread propaganda, but they're also using it to recruit. And now we're seeing them, especially when you look at this arrest, and there's been a few others over the summer, they're using it in much the same way that these jihadist groups had. Like, they're, they're, they're copycatting. Totally. And, and the platform itself actually makes a lot of sense for groups like ISIS or, or, or white nationalists because, you know, the public-facing channels that, you know, anyone can see, that's just one option they can also use one-to-one chats. They can have private groups. They can have private channels. And, you know, the public-facing channels are useful for maybe recruiting curious travelers and radicalizing people. But that's probably just one sliver of the ecosystem that we see. And of course, like if you're using this as sort of a, a base, you can use these like highly encrypted apps that are difficult for governments to get access to to make first contact. And then you can also move to another app if you need to, right? It's not as if this is the only, it's the one-stop shop. Exactly. And I mean, the founder of Telegram, sort of, he, he created it with a sort of blanket commitment to protecting user data from third parties, which includes governments. And that commitment has been repeatedly put to the test by ISIS, because they've been so open about the fact that they're just, you know, orchestrating attacks and, and recruiting. And he has made some changes. And he does, I mean, the Telegram does remove ISIS channels or channels that sort of violate their policy. But from what I understand, those are mostly public-facing channels. And it's it's based in Russia, is it not? Well, the guy who founded it is a Russian entrepreneur living in self-imposed exile. He actually didn't found it in Russia. I believe he founded it after he fled Russia. And where's he based? I heard uh, Nevis, Caribbean, or maybe Dubai. Hmm. I know a lot of Russian hackers are in Thailand. Okay. <laughs> it's, a, it's a hotbed. <laughs> but, they, but they've resisted giving up information to governments, have they not? They have. They did say, I think they changed their policy last year, and they said that they would give information about a user if, you know, the government came to them with proof that that user was the suspect of a terrorist organization. Well, that's insane because I go on Telegram quite often being a terrorism reporter, and there are a lot of terrorist groups and users that certainly would almost qualify underneath those those terms. Totally. And they're doing things like spreading, you know, sharing PDFs of, of bomb-making manuals and... Mother's, uh, mother of Satan. Right. So it's like, it's pretty out there already, but... And, and there was a report that came out last summer saying that, at least as of August 2019, Telegram had never actually been asked to do that, as in give up a user's information. Now, you did a, you, you did a very data-driven, I, I like this story. It's a great story. 
and I think you you did an excellent job of looking at the hard data of these groups and the numbers of them and how they've grown in 2019. So what, what did you find? So I looked at 150 channels, far-right channels, and um, only included ones that had more than 300 subscribers and were predominantly English language because there are a lot of other ones that are you know, Ukrainian or Russian. And I wanted to see, first of all, like when the channels were created, so how they'd grown over time, and also sort of how the ideological bend of those channels had changed. And I found that two-thirds of the channels were created in the first nine months of uh, 2019. So they're growing. They're growing. Exponentially, it seems like. Yes. That and also, you know, I ascribed like a key word that kind of summed up what these channels were all about. So, you know, they'd be like alt-right memes or shitposting or Islamophobic or anti-Semitic general hate. And then also accelerationist, which is this very violent philosophy that is becoming increasingly popular and says that, you know, the fastest way to creating a white civilization is to be violent and undermine social stability. And essentially kick off, you know, it's the whole idea of like carrying out insurgent targeted attacks that will upset and kick off the destabilization of society. Exactly. And so I was noticing that many of the newer channels that have been created, especially since the Christchurch attacks in March, were of this accelerationist type. And they're growing quite quickly and they are very seem to be very popular. This country has seen a rise in violence by white supremacists. That includes the murders of 11 people at a Pittsburgh synagogue last fall. A deadly encounter at a white nationalist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017. The murders of nine people at a church in Charleston in 2015. And the deaths of six people at a Sikh temple in Wisconsin in 2012. Well, one thing that's, that's, that's very troubling about this, I think, is that, you know, when ISIS, for example, when it really started to use Telegram, it was right around that, that time where you had the Bataclan attacks, you had some of these really high-profile attacks that were carried out in Europe, and it was a direct transition to Telegram to evade signals intelligence, to evade authorities, to carry out these attacks much easier. And now you're seeing it almost... Uh, from the you know the white nationalist terrorist cesspool, exactly, and it's going very quickly. Kind of, and it kind of mirrors the same way that white nationalism has intensified really, really quickly in the last couple of years. You know, it's gone from being this like loose network of of like racist trolls essentially to being like terrorists. Which I mean, not to say that they weren't there two years ago, but it's definitely mushroomed. One interesting thing too is is that the way they freaked out when they realized that this this anti-cosmic guy had been had been pinched he was like fuck 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 <laughs> drop it you know it's it kind of like it's one of those things where it makes you realize that these are still just online communities of people i mean even like texting like isis guys in the past you know they were they were like lolling they were lolling saying calling you homie stuff like that but to see these like very serious people who want to bomb things speak in that language it's a bit surreal it's actually pretty funny you say that because uh, we purposefully did not mention any of the channels by name. And I kind of had a look on Telegram to see if there was any chatter over my article. And they seemed kind of bummed that I didn't call them out by name. They were sort of screenshotting little paragraphs and, and thinking like, is this us? You know, <laughs> terrorism and infinite, infamy, you know? Or yes. terrorism and journalism, two mutual parasites. <laughs> exactly. Well, well, there was a similar article, well, one article that came out a couple of weeks ago, and I was already working on this one, and I 
sort of had all my subscriber numbers documented. And this recent article did name many of the channels and also I linked out to a lot of them. And there was a, a definite jump in subscriber numbers before and after. Jesus. Yeah. So do you do you ever think sometimes, good questions, when you report on this stuff, especially when it's they're using these sort of covert networks, online networks to to propagate their message, to recruit. Do you ever find, and I get this question a lot, I want to know what you think. Do you feel like you're ever amplifying, bolstering? Yeah, that, I mean, that's always a fear. I feel like you just always have to weigh the newsworthiness or like what, you know, what bigger story am I trying to tell beyond like, hey guys, there's Nazis on Telegram, you know. I think there was a similar story I did earlier this year where there was a Telegram channel about trying to or harass drag queens who were reading to kids at libraries. And I reported on the threats and the Telegram channel, I didn't name it, but I was worried that, you know, you could inadvertently give people's ideas, you know. Do you ever find that it's just kind of shocking that these, these white nationalist terror groups have sort of evolved and become these very proficient online communities that almost mirror networks of spies and other more serious groups that we've seen in the past. Like, this is this is no longer a joke. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're definitely a lot more sophisticated. And also, we don't even really know the people who are running some of the biggest channels. Like, we don't really know where they are, to be honest. Like, they could be in the US. They also could be in the UK. They could be in Ukraine. You know, we just don't really know. I mean, we have some ideas or, like, some clues, but... One thing I find really interesting, having reported on this for a while, like you have, is seeing this sort of transition from this online shitposting community, the fantasy of it almost, and transitioning into this real paramilitary organization, movement, whatever you want to call it. And it's all being sort of, it's being bolstered by these tools online, these, these encrypted apps, these encrypted uh, chat forums like Telegram. But at the same time, I want Telegram, I want Signal, I want these things to exist. And it's it's about finding that balance. And it's, we're at a really interesting point. How do you, how do you, how do you shut down Telegram when anyone can use it, which means these, these types of white nationalist terrorists could as well? I mean, what do you do? Do you get rid of these encrypted tools? I mean, the fact that the far right or the white nationalists are on Telegram and they've made themselves a home there shows that, you know, they've been exiled from mainstream social media. 8chan is offline for now, but that's not really getting to the the core of the problem necessarily. I think that taking away their means of communication, that's that's not all there is. And the problem runs a lot deeper than that. Did that thought cross your mind when you saw what was happening in Paris, that Telegram could be involved? Did you think about it? Uh, no, of course we are concerned about uh, the potential use of the technology we make. Do you feel that Telegram is in any way responsible for what happened? I don't think so. They were also using iPhones and Android phones and uh, uh, microchips. Kind of misleading to say that we were responsible or any other tech company is responsible for that. You cannot make a messaging technology secure for everybody. And what is it? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, in part, I think, you know, the people are vulnerable to getting radicalized and being recruited. And I'm talking about like the rank and file extremists, not like the, the lead organizers or the people who actually carry out attacks, but the people who do get swept up into this. I think the vast majority of them didn't, you know, they weren't born and immediately thought, oh, I, want, I want to be a Nazi when I grow up. 
I think getting to the point of like why, what makes them vulnerable to recruitment is that maybe something more to think about. It's true. I mean, it's this problem. We're at a point, we're at a moment in history, in our society that's making people want to join these groups. It's not just the internet per se. The internet helps, but it's certainly not just the internet. Well, I think there's also, there was so much good research around, you know, people joining ISIS, just understanding why people are vulnerable in their communities or why they feel like they're not part of something or they're lonely, why they have to go and join these networks online. And I think kind of repurposing some of that research to look at why people are joining Nazi groups, that could be a good start at least. Well, I hope that you keep reporting on this, Tess. I'm, I'm sure you will. <laughs> yeah, we're all pivot to the uh, the animal beat. Yeah. Um, animals doing dumb things. Yeah, just, just the puppy beat. A bit beat. lighter, yeah. I think I saw a Reuters, <laughs> a Reuters n- a top news alert, and it was like a, a kitten sleeping on a mug of coffee. And I was like, yeah, it's the kind of content I need to it's get It's the into. British Bake Off moment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, good luck. Thanks for having me. All right, Jason, welcome back to something we still haven't named yet. It's called The Roundup. The and, Roundup. And you were just on vacation. I was just in Colorado. Yeah, you probably didn't even notice I was gone. I didn't. You know, I didn't. Uh, didn't miss it, you either. It's, it's good to be back at sea level, but not that good because the woods are sick. Yeah, I've, I, I saw you mountains. tweet that. You're like, wait, you're like, turns out nature is pretty tight. It's cool. Yeah, there's no internet and parts of nature are very interesting. How can't do you... Get, can't get hacked if you're in the woods. No, no hackers in the woods. I'm sure there's a hacker in the woods somewhere. But you missed the season premiere of Mr. Robot. I did. Was it any good? I haven't seen it yet. I'm, I'm saving it. I think I'm going to save the whole season. I'm going to watch it back to back to back to back to back. Ed on our team, huge fan of Mr. Robot. Gotta, I'm a huge fan see. of Mr. Robot. Yeah. It's a great show. It's a great show. Producer what? agrees. Uh... So what are we talking about besides my vacay and a show that neither of us have watched? So uh, we we're calling this we're still calling this a roundup, but we've had a few names come in. All right, somebody called I, it. Can I review them? Yeah, somebody someone said, someone said we should call it the cipher. Oh, that's good. I like that. It wasn't bad, right? That's a little it's a little bit serious, but I like it. It's a little serious, but I like it. I like it was cipher by cyber. Yes, yeah, cipher by cyber. I like it. The other one I thought was like also witty, but a little too cutesy that I heard from somebody, some some of the, our listeners, Cyber Bites. Hmm. I, you're not a fan of that. It reminds me of food, except I get I get that it's a file, well, file this, size joke. Yeah, and this roundup is just, it's, it's food for your soul. It is? It's your cyber diet. Your cyber diet. We could call it the cyber diet. Okay, so first one, um... Some researchers uh, totally fucked over Uzbekistani spies because Kaspersky, which is based in Moscow, might I add, has a lot of links to Russian intelligence, found a group they call Sandcat, and it's believed to be Uzbekistan's intelligence agency that apparently is so bad at OPSEC 
they found out a bunch of the exploits they've been using to attack people and stuff that they've been developing. So I guess <laughs> it's one of those cases where... Um, this is uh, my favorite type of cyber security and hacking story. <clears throat> the one where it's like pulled off so terribly that uh, it, it's like not... It's notable in that Uzbekistan was using it to spy on human, right, human rights activists, etc., etc. Which is not chill. It's, it's not chill and it's not good. However, like in the grand scheme of things, this is not like a major story. The fact that Uzbekistan is using this type of software, like it's it's obviously huge for the people of Uzbekistan. But the thing that makes it like an international story is that they were so fucking terrible at it. Yeah, like, I mean, the, the that's, screw up. that's the scripture, the scripture tight. Uh, it's also it kind of shows you just how much like as much as we like to think nation states are sophisticated at this, like some of them are prone to just really massive gaffes that are hilarious. Yeah, my favorite detail of this is Kaspersky owned them so bad uh, or was able to to monitor them so closely that they were able to like watch them writing the exploits or yeah. writing the implementation of it. So yeah. they were just like sitting there. Just watching them be third rate, third rate, third rate spies. Another story, this apocalyptic OS system. Tell, tell me about this. Collapse OS. So Collapse OS is an operating system that was written to run on basically anything. It's an operating system for the uh, for post-apocalypse, after the collapse. So uh, this guy on Reddit uh, has been working on it. It's an open source operating system and it's designed to be able to run on like a Sega Genesis, uh, you know, a graphing calculator, uh, like old, old, old computers, anything that... Uh, someone might be able to scavenge. So he's basically like, this is 30, 40 years after... Right, so it's like a Mad Max OS. Yeah, we're like rebuilding everything and, uh, you know, you find just like this beacon of hope, uh, a TI-83 somewhere, uh, you know, in an old abandoned school this that, is the, this that is has the, survived the nuclear bombs the, and uh, you're able to put Collapse OS on it. This is uh, this is the type of cyber story that is just so deeply nerdy that I just, I love it. Yeah, I, love I it. mean, this raises a couple questions for me. Like, obviously, this is incredible. Uh, however, let's say that the apocalypse does come and we, you know, don't have power grid, et cetera, et cetera. Like, how are you going to navigate to the GitHub to download the code for Collapse OS? Mm -hmm. Like, you need to have it on, like, write it down in a notebook or something, and then input also, it into... Also, I mean, the other thing, too, is that I love is that this person's assuming that in the post-apocalyptic wasteland... Leave we, that in, post-apocalyptic. Poco like it's it. staying in. In this wasteland where we're probably eating each other's flesh, some somebody's like, yeah, but what about computers? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's designed to work with 8-bit uh, microprocessors, uh, which is notable because you can find these in like cash registers, musical instruments, uh, graphing calculators, and other things that have computer chips in them but aren't necessarily specifically computers. And it's designed to like, you know, have a calculator in it uh, assemble source files for like assembler language and also uh, be able to edit like text files, hmm. uh, which is interesting. For I your mean, diary. Yeah, I could see wanting to type up some notes uh, if you're. Really? Hint. I can't. <laughs> Let's say uh, you don't have a pencil anymore because. Uh, I'll just uh, scratch into the ground or something. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm trying to. Hammer and chisel. I'm trying to stay alive. Yeah. I think that's what I'm trying to do. Okay. Okay. So. Collapse OS. Interesting idea. 
I don't know. Probably not going to be super helpful. No, probably not going to be super helpful. Um, So this story pissed me off um, because we all use two-factor authentication. And Twitter uh, took some of the numbers for security and used them for their own gain. Yeah. uh, Not chill, Twitter. This this happens. This keeps happening. Uh, Facebook did something similar. Uh, Twitter, you know, asked people for their phone numbers for two-factor, like you said, uh, SMS-based two-factor authentication, and uh, took that phone number and then started use it, using it to advertise. There's not much more to the story than that huge dick move. That's a that's a dick move and a half. Yeah, man. not it's like good. Trying to trying to just trying to keep myself from getting hacked, and turns out they're hacking me into the motherfucking corporate environment. That's not cool. It's not cool. I said the f word. Um, so something from my my home and native land, where the true the true north, strong and free reside, uh, Canada, put a a UFO on a new coin? They did, yeah. So Ben, what can you tell me about the Shag Harbor incident? Is this like a seminal uh, thing that all Canadians learn about in like preschool? <laughs> Do you know the Shag Harbor incident? <laughs> vaguely, if you don't, I can tell you. About no, it, but... I vaguely know. No, I vaguely. It's it's something to do with like an, a, a UFO in Halifax. But I mean, who really cares about Halifax? It's in Nova Scotia. I know Nova Scotia. If there's anybody listening from there, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm uh, Ontario boy. So, what can you tell me about Shag Harbor? Like, do you do you even know where that is? No, no not at all. Okay, tell well, me about it. What uh, happened? Shag Harbor is a small t- fishing town in Nova Scotia. I mean, what else is there? And back in 1967, there was an airplane that crashed into the water there. I suppose. Oh yes, I've heard of this. And yeah, so there was like a hovering object right above yeah, the yeah. water. And nobody like, knows what it was. No one knows what it was. It's super creepy, actually. Fell into the water. Like thousands of people saw it. Like a lot of people saw it. It's like some weird men in black shit. Yeah, and then no one could find it. Like yeah. the fishermen went looking for it. The RCMP went looking for it. Uh, n- unclear what it was. Uh, and they report, quote, or we talked to an expert about what this was. And they reported, quote, a strange patch of glowing yellow foam was found floating on the surface of the water. Right. So, they, wait, they, they made a coin commemorating that? Yeah, this is a, a momentous occasion in Canadian history. Well, when the top secret files come out and you, we find out that we were making contact with the gray, the gray people, the, the grays, the tall grays. Yeah, the tall grays. This is going to be a bit of a... Yeah, so this two-faced was, thing, Mr. Trudeau. Yeah, this was the so the Royal Canadian Mint made a glow-in-the-dark coin. So I think that this is basically official oh, confirmation gosh. that A, aliens are real, and B, cool historical event. I guess. <laughs> What's wrong? What is wrong with this? Canada, come on. I'm like I'm into it. I'm, I'm into, into it. it, but like I, I don't know. It's a, it seems a little bit it's not a big enough event. Like I don't think of it. I mean, I don't think you were you. We know where you grew up. You didn't. Oh. You didn't have a good uh, good education. <laughs> Comment on the way I speak now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, hey, I, I do believe. By the way, I, I am a believer. Well, I guess we should end on me being a, a Canadian who had a bad education. Is that a good way to end uh, this? It is good. GitHub renewed its uh, its contract with ICE. Which oh sucks. yeah, that was a. That was a great By the story. time this comes out, uh, we're recording this on Wednesday, and this is coming out on Thursday. And if GitHub doesn't cancel its contract with ICE by tomorrow, I'll be shocked. Just because everyone's super messed, uh, super. Yeah, mad I mean, it's pretty messy to have contracts with them these days. I think, 
you know, yeah, for many yeah. a reason. Uh, we've seen it time and time again where a uh, company is like, hey, we're going to renew our contract with ICE. And then everyone's like, why would you do that? We hate you. <laughs> we're going to stop working with you or working for you or we're going to pull code from you or whatever. Uh, and then the company reneges on that and goes back. <clears throat> and so I would expect that to happen with GitHub too. Uh, but but we we'll no see. Idea. I yeah, mean, we... here's the thing too, though. It's DHS escapes on this one. Because DHS is, I mean, they, they have contracts with everybody. They do. I mean, obviously ICE is part of DHS. And I think it's like when it's specifically ICE, yeah, that's what's gotten the brunt of sort of the activism and, and blowback. But then, yeah, you're but right. But DHS is in DHS, charge of, of DHS ICE. DHS works with everyone, yeah. as does the DEA, as do like all these other uh, yeah. three-letter agencies well, that obviously do some good things and many other not good things. Mm-hmm. So uh, so I guess yeah. we'll see what GitHub does. Yeah, it's a $200,000 contract and GitHub is like, we don't need the money. It's not that important. It's not that much money for us, but still they're going to do it. So yeah, we will see. Well, we'll see. Yeah. But also, if you really think about it, it doesn't matter because aliens are real and uh, they live among us. Aliens are real. uh, (laughs) And and I still understand how we're not talking more about this. And soon we'll be uh, using Collapse OS. Yeah. So, all right. This has been the roundup. Thank you. This has been the roundup. Oh, no, it's Cyber Cyber Cypher. Cyber Cypher? 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 No, that's we're just trying it. We're just trying it. We'll vote on it. Okay. Bye. This week's episode was edited and recorded by Andrew Bursick, produced and hosted by me, Ben Maku, and you'll be hearing from us next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>